I want to teach you how to tell the future. And this uh, podcast, entitled Prognostication, subtitle Nostradamus, is your lesson in how to tell the future, how to read the tea leaves, how to know what's going to happen in this world. And it's a very interesting exercise. And I used to think uh, that the people who've been sort of the prophets, uh, both the prophets of God and the prophets of uh, literature and culture and philosophy, were simply people who, in a sort of almost superstitious way, uh, had an uncanny, inspired, um, non-human ability to simply shoot the arrow up into space and uh, it would land in the right place when it came back, or to shoot their bolt and it hit the target. That is to say, for some reason, beyond understanding, a prophet and understander shot his uh, her um, voice into the dark and hit the exact place where things were going to be, where things were going to turn out. And uh, if there were a science, there was really no science. But uh, somehow, sharp prophetic people knew what was going to happen, and that accounted for, um, you know, uh, some of. Uh, uh, Edith Wharton or uh, Mark Twain, some of their uh, remarkable novels, George Orwell for sure. And I was wrong and completely wrong. And what I've learned about prognostication or foretelling the future is that there are two very um, real um, ways you do it. There are two ways, there are two uh, themes, there are two truths that if you hold them, uh, one in one hand and one in the other, you can in fact tell the truth. Uh, that is the truth about the future in an uncanny and mystifyingly accurate way. It won't win you any friends in the present be when you hear what these, um, these two elements uh, that you, filaments that you hold in the left and the right hand are. It will earn you no, um, by definition, will earn you no friends in the present, but it will earn an enormous, um, um, surprised, bemused, honored uh, privilege and uh, awe in the future. You'll be dead. You won't hear it. Uh, but your memory will live on in the accuracy of what you foretold. Now, these two filaments, uh, one is the uh, understanding of human nature. If you understand that human nature does not change, if you understand what uh, theologians in the Christian tradition have always called original sin, human nature. If you understand the facts, the empirical facts and understanding of how human nature is and its inviolable, uh, enduring, uh, steady state, unchanging, unevolving character on the one hand, together with understanding how the world, how law, and how fashion operates, which is basically on a 180 degree kind of curve or um, model or meter, then you will be able to tell the future. Now let me, I'm going to give as always a text because you can't just pop off and say these things without having some reason. Now, you'll laugh when I tell you that uh, the author that is in my mind is Philip Wiley, but that's, uh, don't write me off here. You've heard a little bit too much about him, but he's a fascinating case in point. It came home to me not long ago when a very, um, a friend who I very much value far away, uh, who's not involved in the sort of, uh, of Christian loop that I've been in for uh, so many years and which I treasure in so many ways, but is coming from outside that loop entirely. And he said, look, what is it about Wiley? 
Riley that you like. He said, he said, this is, he said, he, this fellow knew all about him. He said, oh, I remember him. I remember Generation of Vipers. But what is it now that touches you? And what I said, it came out of my mouth. I said, well, he's a terrible writer by our standards. He is uh, a full of rants and uh, has a kind of holier-than-thou idea that he has the right to lecture the future. He's constantly adopting a kind of what we used to call a male elitist white, you know, um, establishment role that he somehow has the right to tell everybody what's wrong with himself. Uh, that's the kind of thing you associate with a totally different generation. So it's very generational and very old. So what is it? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's because throughout these impossible-to-read books, there are so many stabs at, at, at the future that are true. There, he, he's running about an 80% uh, fulfillment uh, quotient for his predictions in his science fiction uh, books that he wrote in the uh, 19... Uh, um, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, if you know what happened, and we do, he died in 1971, he runs about an 80, and then sometimes, if you want to look at it this way, almost a 90% accuracy rate in his future telling, his dystopian landscapes as well as his utopian landscapes from the future. They're almost all correct in, in terms of, in terms of uh, certain basic changes in fashion and fashionable views and habits of life and mores, and it's really astonishing. Obviously, he was on to something. Let me give you some examples of this, and then uh, I'll tell you what it really is and why Wiley's uh, predictions, you too, for you the living, this mash was meant to. When you get to my house, tell them Boris sent you. My dear friend uh, Brian Helm at the Church of the Advent in Birmingham uh, said to me before I left, he said, I just have one word of advice to you before you go on to your new job. Never, ever sing the monster mash again in public. Uh, you know, I'd beaten the dead horse, and I proceeded never to do it again. And it was probably my worst mistake. But be that as it may, I know where Brian was coming from. Now, um, let me give you an example of, of the extraordinary, almost clockwork, uh, accuracy of Philip Wiley. And really, it's stunning, to use modern words. So, you know, stunning is a word that people use because it doesn't have a value judgment. It can be negative or positive. You know, that was a stunning request to me that you would like me to marry you. I'm, I'm stunned and thrilled. Or that was a stunning blow that you delivered to my whole career path and my future by doing such and such to destroy my life. You know, stunning is one of these words that like, um, what is it? Uh, um, a hefty response. What is a robust? It's like robust that that is now used because it doesn't. It, you know, it can cover either terrible or awful or or wonderful. Now um, the stunning uh, predictions that Wiley makes in his 1971 novel, which was made by Steven Spielberg into a uh, hour long or maybe even longer. I have not seen it, but I've seen the trailer uh, television uh, uh, show with Gene Barry, and apparently is very good in the trailer for it. It's outstanding. But he um, he wrote a book, and then he died. He wrote a book, and then he died uh, in 1971 called L.A. A.D. 2017. Los Angeles A.D. 2017. Today they wouldn't say A.D. they just say Los Angeles 2017. And in this book, which uh, is of a man in 1971, a sort of corporate executive, a media executive, who uh, is sort of put to sleep by a chemical and sleeps 46 years until he is, uh, he is uh, um, revived in a new society that lives underground because of an eco-catastrophe that has overcome the East Coast and the West Coast of the United States, and in fact the whole the whole country, the world, and he is taken to an underground world with all sorts of negative and some positive features um, that uh, 
the survivors of the world after the eco-catastrophe while the atmosphere is being cleaned up, God willing, naturally <laughs> go, go underground and live. And it's about a man in 1971, and it was written in 1971, who's sort of seeing what happened in A.D. 2017. Now, uh, Wiley, like all writers like this, always had a more extreme, because it was science fiction, a more extreme script than actually happened. So what we see is not as extreme. We see a nuclear disaster here, but we don't see 25 of them. Uh, we see uh, global warming, but we also see it on a very slow scale. We see electric cars, but they sort of all take off you know, over in a certain number of years. And um, fossil fuels and you name it, um, drilling, and uh, it just takes much longer. But in a writer who's in a work of imagination, he's got to put it all into one book. But these are some of the things in 1971 that he prophesied directly and overwhelmingly with – even using the words that are now used in the year 2011. Global warming, obviously. The greenhouse effect. He has the Bhopal disaster. The, the Union Carbide, wasn't it? A member of my church, actually, in New York, uh, was the um, senior executive of that company during that terrible, terrible disaster. The Bhopal, India, catastrophe of all these people who died because of the escaped gases from the plant. Um, the fact that nobody's smoking. He immediately notices in the 2017 that everybody was smoking in 1971 when he had this experience, and now not a soul is smoking. Uh, and uh, he, he's, we're going to learn about that. You'll learn about why that is. But smoking is an absolute no-no in the year 2017. So that makes him sort of laugh. Corporatism. Uh, the government is now known as the corporation. And even though many things have changed, i.e. half the world's population or 75% have died um, and everyone lives underground, uh, corporations are alive and well. The corporate thing, the corporate hold, the corporate paradigm of life and economy is alive and well and stronger than ever in Los Angeles AD uh, 2017. He talks about Route 128 in Boston at one point uh, and uh, how that's the electronic highway. And of course, that was happening in the early 70s. We were there. I remember it. I remember driving along. But uh, that's, uh, uh, the, he, 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 he he, he sees that even then. Uh, but there's an awful lot more. Um, he talks about astroturf, astrodomes, electric cars, covert homosexuality. He talks about, uh, while he was extremely liberal, to use the con conventional word, on sexuality of all, con all forms. As a matter of fact, a lot of the things he said would not be allowed today on the left, let alone the right. Um, but he, uh, he talks about the whole question of covert homosexuality versus open homosexuality and the, the end of all covertness in regard to sexuality. He talks about, he prophesies the overwhelming significance and importance of internet pornography and particularly vicarious sex, uh, either with telephones or camcorders. He talks about cam sex and internet pornography he, he describes the world of 2017 as an almost total leap into the puritanical opposite of what was true of puritanical American views in the 1950s and 60s. He, uh, uh, he works out the significance and the allure of vicarious sexuality in terms of Internet pornography for um, men, especially, in 2017, uh, yet strangely mixed with a tremendous amount of absolute parity of sexual roles and gender roles in 
terms of careers, and yet the overwhelming interest among men in that era of 2017, writing in 1971 before the internet even came about, really in any functional, large way, of internet pornography. It's shocking how he uh, predicts that. He, 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 He talks about everybody has first names, he meets the mayor of the underground vast city state of Los Angeles, and he says, he says, this is mayor, the mayor, Bob Baker, and the Glenn Howard, the protagonist who's Philip Wiley, 46 years after he fell asleep, says, well, how do you do, Mayor Baker? And Mayor Baker says, oh, I'm, I'm Bob. We all are first names here. And then at one point he talks to a, quote, secretary who he doesn't want to call a secretary because he says she does so much more than a secretary does. She is his, she is his, his, uh, his, his, in every sense, his alter ego, his vital alter ego assistant. And he meets this person in 2017 and he calls her, he calls her Miss Sussex or something like that. And she says, oh, please, we're all, I'm Leandra. And finally, at some point he calls her Leandra, Leandra. And uh, she says, oh, thank you for Leandra. Uh, we we all are on first names here. I mean, I think of doctor's offices today. Have you been to a doctor's office in the last 46 years? You know, Mr. Zal, are you kidding? Paul, I keep want to say, you know, five heads go up. Bill, four heads go up. We're at the doctor. We'll see you now. And I mean, first names, well, whatever you think about it. In 2017, not in 1971, when Wiley wrote this, we're all going to be going completely by first names. Glenn, you know, it's amazing. He talks about how all uh, signals uh, to do something, uh, you know, in public, uh, like in public address systems, are all chimes. They're no longer they're no longer bells. They're chimes. Ding, 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 like a, you know, a German railway station. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, he's got it. Euthanasia. He talks about how the right to die uh, very rapidly becomes uh, uh, a a a uh, 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 becomes quickly uh, taken over by a kind of uh, mod eugenic view, a contemporary eugenic view. They call it lulling people who who really can't survive because of genetic defects or they can't contribute to this very limited and surviving society. They're lulled serenely and joyfully, lulled, <laughs> they're put to death by means of a chemical. Euthanasia, he talks about partners. He says, well, now, in 2017, writing in 1971, no one had lovers and no one had husbands and wives. Everybody had partners. Well, I mean, he predicts the use of the word. Um, he even goes down to the, saying that the fixation that American men, at least, in the um, 50s, 60s, and even up to the 70s had in uh, big breasts uh, in women. I mean, this is just the way it was. Hollywood, uh, you know, Jane Mansfield, Diana Doors, the whole thing that that represents that is now just so awfully regarded. But it was very, very uh, a key theme in feminine archetypes in Hollywood in for many, many years. Just remember what Frank Tashlin said about that. Just just quote him. Just read what Frank Tashlin, who did all the Jerry Lewis movies and all these other comedies with Terry Thomas, made phenomenal amounts of money for the studios. And 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 find out what he said about this subject. And he says, uh, Wiley, however, says by 2017, the fad for big breasts had gone down to a fixation on small breasts. Well, that says a point. Forget what I said, except forget, except see what it says about about the the amazing shift. Now, this is what is so um, interesting about, uh, for example, a, a guy who was able to um, predict the future with uh, a kind of un, um, uh, unexceptioned uh, radical truthfulness. And that's what you'll find in his astonishing book, which no one reads. And by the way, it's very hard to read. You can't get it. And I had to read it off a Russian 
site. It's been uh, transcribed by somebody on a Russian internet site uh, who obviously doesn't know English. So there are just hundreds and hundreds of significant typos. So you have to really want to read this book, which is in a t terrible format, just awful, and it's been transcribed by a typist who doesn't know English. So um, you got to really want to read it. But when you read it, it'll knock your socks off. But you don't have to read it. Listen to this podcast. Now, what are the two? This, this is where it comes interesting for Mockingbird or for people who are looking at life from a New Testament perspective, as we hope we, we some of us at least want to, or even, shall we say, something that has to do with truth. And I mean truth in terms of accurate reality of the world. And the things that, uh, that Wiley had. And he said it. It comes across again and again and again. He wrote a nonfiction book called Sons and Daughters of Mom, which is a reference to something he wrote in the 1940s about momism in a generation of vipers that got him into terrible trouble. And I wouldn't want to argue one whit for that. I'm not in a trillion years uh, trying to say that that is one thing or another. But I am uh, in the book, the nonfiction book that he wrote while he was also writing this fictional book and then he died, uh, Sons and Daughters of Mom, uh, the same, uh, you, these things are expressed uh, somewhat more theoretically and in an impossible to read way. No one whom Wiley thought he was addressing, which was sort of hippies and anti-establishment SDS young college students of the late 60s and early 70s would read this book. I mean, it is such a lecture. You know, you, you're going to just want to throw up and say, are you out of your mind, Philip Wiley? No one who you're trying to reach would read this because that you are so pompous and you're so self-important. But if you care to put that aside just because you want to, and I did, uh, just because I wanted to read the book, you will find so many explanations of what is so unparalleled accurate in the other books. And I could give you chapter and verse in all of his uh, 1950s and 60s nuclear war, Holocaust books, apocalyptic books, his science fiction stories, his Martian stories, his When Worlds Collide, After Worlds Collide, The Paradise Crater, the books about atom bombs that got into the hands of the wrong people, The Smuggled Atom Bomb, uh, any number of other stories and uh, um, uh, he, the way he invented the Superman character in his famous book Gladiator. Uh, the guy had an unfathomable um, knack for predicting the future. Now, this is the thing. <clears throat> he never um, uh, said that he didn't believe. That is to say, he frequently said that, like James Gould Cousins, who was not a believer but had grown up in Christianity, a fairly benign form of Episcopalian Christianity, but a lot of it through prep school and so forth, and Wiley the same, grew up in a liberal Presbyterian household but with a very strong commitment and a, a tremendous amount of uh, uh, traditional Christianity, although on the liberal side in his life. These men uh, both affirmed that human they had a pessimistic view of human nature. Now, we might call it joyfully pessimistic, as someone I know has called it. It wasn't entirely joyful in Cousin's case, and it was sort of um, rather raspy and somewhat barbed in Wiley's case, but it was a view of the human condition that believed that men and women are not anywhere near as able to um, unravel and free themselves from the constraints of human nature than they think they are. For Wiley, it took the form of believing that 
that instinctuality and the sort of the body, the natural person, the body of a human being, male and female, particularly in its sexual and other biological imperatives, was to be listened to and could not be gainsaid, that you couldn't uh, walk against it, you couldn't fight against it, you couldn't say something wasn't true about your body that simply was true, you couldn't deny that you were a sexual being fundamentally, male and female, you couldn't say you were something you weren't because you were, that human nature is static, that human nature of our great-grandparents has not changed since to, down to us and to our great-grandchildren. And this is, an in, they both claim that this was something positive from their Christian background, that the, the view of the, of the human being, which we see quintessentially in the book of Romans and St. Paul and in the book Galatians and uh, in the teachings of Jesus, where he says that all these things come from inside a man, Sin, uh, predatoriness, meanness, cruelty, malice, hatred, resentment, uh, gossip, uh, envy, all these things come from inside a person. They don't come from outside a person. AA, you know, you got to start with you, you know, a good therapist. You, I'm the only one you can work with the patient. You can't work, you can't change your father, but you can change your, your own processing of your dad and so forth and so on. That's true. And they all believed that is to say, Wiley believed that a man was in the grip of instinctual subconscious. Uh, by the way, um, William James believed this too, that the subconscious was the key thing. Freud believed it, Jung believed it, and I believe it. And St. Paul believed it. <laughs> Hannah Arendt, in her wonderful book where she says St. Paul started this view because you don't find it with the Greeks. Um, and you really don't find it in the Old Testament, except it's there by, def by implication in a number of places. But it's, it's key in Jesus and especially in St. Paul and in John, I think, also, the Johannine corpus. Um, you, uh, you have this, um, this human nature, which is basically involved in the fulfillment of instinctual wishes and desires. You have all sorts of voices of censure and negation which uh, create conflict and the human being is consistently caught between conscience slash law slash negation and instinctual behavior and life and the id and we are really um, in a very uh, rocky place and that these forces are so deep-seated they cannot be unsaid, they cannot be, be uh, pulled out of the equation. Now this is the absolute... Um, for uh, a rock of anyone who predicts the future, because what you know is that you're not that what you are doing in the year 2011, your children will be thinking and feeling in the year 2035, and your grandchildren in the year 2018, and your grandchildren in the year 2035, and their children in the year 2045, and that you believe this is a an a priori. Um, assumption, but it's an empirical reality. It's based on what we see. It's, it's also inductive. It's not deductive. It's inductive and then becomes deductive. It starts out with observation, then it becomes a set principle, a premise that never fails you. That human beings are intractably what they are, and they're not going to change evolutionarily in their fundamental core individual makeup. So Cousin says this profoundly when he says that in the in the 1850s and 60s, everybody still got pregnant. Teenagers still got babies out of wedlock. Uh, young men were still seducing young women at the age of 14, 15, 16 in high school. I mean, it was instead, but it wasn't the backseat of a car. It was in, uh, it was, uh, it was in, uh, 
it was in a, the, the, the hay hayloft, and it was in the buckboard, and it was in the back of the wagon. And uh, then in the 50s and 60s and the 40s, it was the back of the car, back seat of the car. And then uh, later now it's, uh, you know, your mom works, obviously, and your dad works both. And you come home from school and you lose your virginity and in your room at home when not, your parents aren't there or whatever it is. That, I mean, that's just what the movies say. Nightmare on Elm Street, Nightmare on Elm Street, part one, part two, part three, part four, Heather Langerkamp, you know, all of that, whatever, all that is about, it's the same thing. And with our grandchildren, they'll lose their virginity in a different place, in a different way, in a different setup, but it's the same, the same age, same drive. And so you, you see that the... Uh, the fundamental drives of the human being, the fundamental drives for control and for conquest as well as fear and anxiety and uh, wanting to be liked and peer pressure and all these things are fundamentally. So that's how you can predict. That part is not going to change. Now the second thing, the second filament, the second part of this uh, connection that you put together and then you have a sure or almost sure 80% grasp of what's going to happen is that fashion is constantly correcting partial truths. In other words, a, a, uh, a, the truth, for example, that, that everyone wanted to smoke. I mean, everybody smoked. I mean, I don't know if you realize if you're listening to this, but when uh, you, you grew up, just the question was when? Who was going to teach you? When did you start smoking? was the issue. It wasn't about smokes and smoking after sex or smoking when no one's looking and doing the bad thing. It was not a bad thing. The question was simply, when are you going to learn how to smoke? And uh, I, I didn't, but it was really odd that I didn't as a kid because everybody else learned how to smoke. You, it was something you learned how to do. And somebody taught you and you had a terrible episode and you coughed and coughed and coughed. And, and uh, now the point is not the smoking. The point is it's the opposite today. I mean, yes, many people smoke, and it's a bad thing, and so it has this tremendous cachet. But um, uh, today, in, an infinitely smaller number smoke publicly. Than, as a matter of fact, you get arrested in New York, and I'm sure you'll get arrested everywhere, you know. Put down the cigarette. You know, you can feed SWAT teams outside of your door. You know, put it down now. Uh, this is what's going to happen. Elias Gonzalez, Elian Gonzalez, you know, the, an attack on your house, you know, because you're smoking. But what um, people understand about if human nature is the same, but fashion is always changing. And basically fashion goes from, from zero to 180 and then from 180 back to zero and flip-flops and flip-flops and flip-flops and flip-flops and flip-flops and flip-flops. And if you understand that, now why is that true? Now, for example, as I told you in Wiley's book, Los Angeles AD, to Anno Domini, 2017, the, um, nobody smokes. Now, they're taking another drug. Something else is going on. Something, another drug is being administered to all these people. But uh, and, and the Glenn, the guy from 1971, is smart enough to understand something, because human nature hasn't changed, there's some other substitute for the addictive, to fulfill the addictive personality. And it turns out to be it's a kind of drug that everybody's getting in their sort of tea. Uh, it's a kind of a sedative because they're living such terribly upsetting lives and they've lost so many people they love. And life is so terrible that it's very similar, if you remember um, how that works in... Uh, 
THX 1140A, and I think that's what it is. Isn't that the one where everybody's on, on tranquilizers all the time? THX 1148. Robert Duvall, George Lucas, that first film of his is so awful and so upsetting. And you see the same at, what is it, the Green Tea Cafe or something in, in, uh, in uh, George Orwell's 1984, where Winston Smith finally ends up because everybody who's sort of been through the torture chamber, all the former Trotskyites and rebels, are basically drugged. They live basically on drugs for the rest of their lives. They're all lobotomized, essentially, in terms of drugs. Well, the same is true here. He knows instinctively that if they're not smoking, they must be doing something else because the addictive personality never changes. So if you understand that fashion always – first it goes from left to right and from right to left and from left to right again. And secondly, uh, fashion – because you never know the whole truth. I mean you, you never know the whole truth about a thing. Um, you, 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 uh, the Christian Protestant world comes down on extramarital sex because of a legitimate desire to protect uh, monogamous, um, happy Christian marriage that is sexual in its best sense, sort of the John Milton approach I've talked about. But that's not the whole truth. I mean something is missing there. Obviously, because in another 200 years, everybody looks upon that monogamous thing as bad. I mean, if you look at any of the sort of pundits in, uh, in Great Britain today, the Labour government before Cameron came in, but I'm sure it's still around, actually hired people to do a philosophical manifesto of why we don't want to have marriage and why we actually want to encourage our public housing, what they call housing estate, a strategy and where they build and how they build and for whom they build their housing in 2011 or 2010 England. They, uh, there was a whole, a whole philosophy of, of to, to put down monogamous marriage. Uh, and it's a philosophy of it. So, but that's not the whole truth either, because we we all know that seven-year-olds want their, you know, like Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt recently discovered that their seven-year-old has said, "When are you all going to get married, mommy and daddy?" You know, seven-year-olds um, derive security. Seven to eleven-year-olds and older, actually, but certainly young children derive security explicitly, whether we like it or not, from couples that are from mothers and fathers who are married. We may think it's terrible on a part of our seven-year-olds, but they're not going to stop being seven-year-olds just because we have a different concept. Uh, and uh, the, the, so the, the point is that that we can get rid of marriage, but it'll come back. Or we can say only marriage, but that's not the whole truth either, evidently, because there's such a reaction to it. And you have all these other movements and uh, parties which attempt to uh, fill out the picture. So what I guess I'm saying, what I am saying, is that the truth, we, ne we only know about 30% of the truth max at any moment. We only know ourselves about 10%. I only know my wife, you know, I mean, I'm hoping that I know her better every day, but in many ways, there are ways in which one's knowledge of another person is painfully limited because our knowledge of ourselves is so limited. The more you know of yourself, the more likely you are to know of somebody else. Now, this is important. So therefore, Wiley understood that fashion always reflecting only a half-truth. It's like, you know, what causes cancer? I mean, is it cranberries? You know, is it, uh, what about gluten-free diets? What about hypo, every, every, uh, every five years there's an enormously new thing that people uh, don't, shouldn't do or don't do or can't do because it affects their health. But if you really step away from your personal investment with whatever that particular insight is, peanut butter allergies, whatever it is. Uh, there's a great line in Steven Spielberg's uh, version of War of the Worlds when, when, she said, when they've escaped from the aliens and they only have pe peanut butter. I mean, it's, it's the only thing they've managed to take away and that's the only thing they have to eat. And the little girl played by Dakota Fanning brilliantly, said, Rachel, said, Daddy, I can't eat peanut butter. He said, well, it's the only thing we have. 
I'm sorry, I'm allergic. She's a very sort of a little uh, child who's obviously been been um, is full of all sorts of fears. So she's she's absolutely full of thousands of little fears. But he says, "What do you mean you're allergic to to peanut butter? Since when?" In other words, he he brought her up, and she was never allergic as far as he knew until like just now, and she's like 11, and she says, "Since birth." Well, I mean, there's right on both sides, isn't there? If she's allergic to peanut butter since birth, she's allergic to peanut butter since birth. The father says, well, that's new to me. I mean, I raised you until one year, two years ago. You know, and I, I saw you eat peanut butter all the time. So what's true? What's true about diet? What's true about what causes cancer? Every time you look, you know, you, you, if you follow the New England Journal of Medicine or whatever the current survey is, there'll be a new cause for cancer every week. I mean, currently I'm told that cause, cancer is caused by watching B science fiction movies. Apparently there's something in the kind of, the kind of um, um, special effects uh, that were used in the traveling mat shots and the way that they did the special effects in 50s science fiction movies. And if you watch it, actually it was some kind of Röntgen or some kind of electromagnetic thing that causes cancer. So I've been told that I can no longer watch 50s science fiction movies. But only five years ago, I was told that I could not watch Janus film classics of foreign films. If I watched Orpheus by Jean Cocteau or Marcel Carnet's Les Enfants du Paradis or Akira Kurosawa, that there was something in the film stock of these movies, these art house movies in the 1960s, that I I saw that was causing cancer, and that I was probably already sterile I, I, because I had watched these things. So now, you know, what's it going to be next year? You know, it's going to be something, another, you know, sugar uh, in some form. Or the point is, what I'm trying to say is, Wiley understands life because he realizes that fashion is forever changing. And if you realize, as he did, that we never know the whole truth because we don't know the whole truth about ourselves. We can therefore predict that what people are saying today with enormous vehemence is going to be stated as the exact opposite at some point because fashion is moving, especially in its more extreme versions, is always moving from one extreme to another. Now, obviously, we wish it could be in medias re, I mean, in the middle, a balanced moderation, but people don't think that way. They often take things to extremes, like Jody, Billy Joel says, um, and uh, that being the case, and Americans certainly take things to extremes. You have this remarkable um, thing uh, where uh, you, if you know that human nature doesn't change, but fashion doesn't, does change, and fashion is always trying to catch up with the truth and recalibrate, but then it goes too far on the right of the truth, so it has to recalibrate left, and then it goes too far left, then you can predict the feature. So you can predict a sure shooting that if we don't, no one's smoking a cigarette today for all these reasons of, uh, that we now uh, are believing are true, in 20 years, everyone will, everyone will be doing something like that, but it will probably take a different form. So all you need to do is realize that, and then you can predict with absolute authority that whatever is happening in 25 years or 40 years, it'll be almost the opposite of any extreme position that is taken today. So lawyers who run the show today will probably all be in prison or there'll probably be nobody in law schools in 40 years. And doesn't that sound impossible? The very fact that it's, it's impossible to imagine. It's impossible to imagine that I-4 or uh, the Sunshine Expressway or the Beach Line in Central Florida will not have um, every three out of four uh, uh, billboards for trial lawyers. I mean, it's impossible to imagine now a time when when it won't be the case that of three out of four billboards will be for lawyers to sue somebody if you had an accident. That's the way it is. But for that very reason, 
we can, I can guarantee you, because of the nature of fashion and because human nature doesn't change, that at some point our grandchildren will be driving their whatever kind of uh, chariot down uh, I-4 and all the billboards will be for whatever the opposite is uh, for, uh, you know, um, the trialers because that's the way it's going to be. Because if anyone had predicted this 40 years ago, they wouldn't have believed you. And you can, you can take that a million different ways. You can take that a million different ways. The point is not the thing itself. It's not whether lawyers are right or lawyers are wrong. It's not whether trial lawyers do a wonderful thing for the world or they do a negative thing for the world. It is simply the absolute sure fact that whatever is big today will not be big tomorrow. I mean, maybe the Beatles. Thank God. You know, um, but uh, not much more. I mean, I'm looking at a complete collection here of Mars Attacks cards, an original collection that a man named David Anderson, together with my own collecting over the years, has offered me. And I'm looking at a complete collection of Mars Attacks cards from 1963. These are worth their weight in gold. No one had heard of Mars Attacks cards after about 1964 because they were considered way too gross and really full of blood and guts. I mean, they're really very violent little cards for 1963, and they're wonderful. I love them. I just live for them. I collected them like they were the most precious things in the world to me. Now, all of a sudden, I mean, this is worth a small fortune, you know, $50. It's worth, a, it's worth something. And everybody saw Mars Attacks. I mean, it's on Netflix now by uh, Tim Burton. Um, that's a minor, imagine, ridiculous example. But all I'm trying to say, nothing will not have its day. Nothing will not have its day. And nothing will not suffer eclipse, if this is correct. And that's why Los Angeles, AD 2017, is a masterpiece because he understood that prognostication and understanding the world depends on the static character of the human being deep down, the, the nature of the beast. Human nature is static on the one hand, and fashion is ever-changing. Remember Style Council? My ever-changing moods. Fashion is ever-changing, and because no fashion ever captures even a large segment of the whole truth, it has to be calibrated differently within a very short period of time. And over a long period of time, it is completely reversed. I mean, today, everybody has no hair. I mean, all men are looking like, you know, um, some kind of Roman wrestlers or something like that. No hair. That's considered. But not long ago, everybody thought that the only way to go and to be a man was to have really long hair. I mean, no one bothers to think about that, but there you have it. So all you needed to do in the time when, you know, they made me cut my hair, those wonderful songs, you know, from the 60s, uh, Hair, the musical, all you needed to do is watch Hair, the musical, and you would exactly know what would happen in the year 2011, that no one would be having any hair on their heads who was male. That's all you need. So I hope that helps you understand our world. It certainly helps me understand mine. I hope it deconstructs your world. I hope it gives you huge admiration for a Christian view of the human being coupled with a non-worldly view of worldly fashion. And then you can't miss. Although, admittedly, um, it does uh, tend to help you disattach from strongly held feelings about current norms, whatever they may happen to be. Thank you for listening, and lots of love, and hugs, and God bless.